Okay, so uh, I'm Alan Chalmers. I'm Professor of Visualization, as Luke said, um, in, in WMG, the digital lab, which is a building right across the, the pond. Um, I moved here four years ago from the University of Bristol, um, basically to, to join the digital lab, which is effectively a research center, which is trying to look to the future and try and do things which perhaps you, can't, you couldn't do in any normal department. Um, and what we're looking at is a project uh, called Real Virtuality, which is obviously a deliberate play on, on virtual reality, uh, to try and create uh, computer environments which are perceptually equivalent to the real world. Um, so basically, we'll see why and how we do that and what the reason for it, but really trying to understand how we can actually make these virtual worlds which are very equivalent as if you were there in the real world. Here's a typical tourist photo taken from Holiday Snap in Clarence in the Orange Free State. How many people know that? Anyone been to Clarence in the Orange Free State in South Africa? Okay, you need to get out more. Um, <laughs> basically, here's a typical tourist photo you'll take when you, you know, come, come home, you show your friends and say, well, yeah, very nice, but I mean, not particularly interesting. But if you were actually there, okay, no sound of it. Anyway, so there should be some sound. Basically, you'd hear the sound of the running water. Uh, you'd be able to look around. You'd, you'd hear the, you know, the, the sound of the birds singing. Uh, you'd have the smell of the morning um, you know, grass, etc. So it's a far more rich visual and, and perceptual experience, which you simply don't get from a tourist photo. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, you go to your favorite location, take a picture. It's a representation of reality, but it's not the same as being there. Um, and so really, it's, it's the whole point of, 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 of this real virtuality, also, we also call it their reality, is if you were there, that's what you'd experience, and you'd be able to have the full multi-sensory experience. Because we are multi-sensory beings. We perceive the world not just with our, with our eyes, although those are a key part of what we do. Uh, but basically, all, all our senses are making a major difference. Because, uh, you know, obviously ours are dominant, but we also, we hear a lot, we, you, know, you obviously listen to me now, smell is very important, very, certainly from an evolutionary point of view. Uh, if, if there would suddenly be a smell of burning in this room, uh, everyone's attention would be drawn to that immediately. You would you'd forget what we're else and, and try and understand what, what the smell of burning is. Feel, the temperature, how comfortable the seat is, all having a major effect on you. And the taste, the taste of the morning coffee or your, your breakfast is also having an effect on you. In addition to these individual centers, a key part of how we perceive the world is these so-called cross-modalities the influence of one sense on another. So the ventriloquism effect is a classic example of that. When you're watching television, it sounds as if the voices are coming from the, the characters on the screen. In fact, they're not. They're coming from speakers around, around the room or wherever. And similarly, a ventriloquism doll, you sound as if the voice is coming from the doll, but in actual fact, it's coming from the ventriloquist. Uh, there's a restaurant, uh, the Fat Duck in, in Surrey, I think, uh, where if you go there and you order oysters, um, they will give you a, an iPod, and you play the iPod, and you hear the sound of the sea, because oysters taste better when you hear the sound of the sea. Now, I don't think oysters could ever taste better, but uh, if, you, if you have the sound of sea, they taste even better than they would otherwise taste. Um, and so when, you, when you're trying to create these virtual environments, you can't ignore any sense because they are having a major effect. So what I'm going to do quickly is just go through the different senses and give you examples of where things may be different. Uh, the classic one, of course, is, is visuals. Um, this is a work we're doing at, uh, in, in, on Cyprus in a little town called Kitty, which is a Byzantine cathedral we're trying to reconstruct. We do a lot of work in virtual archaeology. It's one of the key applications. And you can see that the, 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 the sixth-century Byzantine church looks very different depending on the time of day. So dawn, midday, and dusk. It's very different perception. So your lighting, having actual lighting correct in the environment is going to make a major contribution to how you perceive this. Even thing as a single light uh, environment. And similarly, this work. This is work in Carte Blanc in France. Anyone been to the cave arts in France? Okay, you definitely need to get out more. This is a wonderful cave art site. It's a carving of, uh, of horses, 25,000 BC. Uh, and you, know, you go there, you see the, 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 these carvings that are the modern lighting. Um, this is obviously a reconstruction of that. And that's very different from how it may have been perceived in the past when it's lit by candlelight. And so your whole perception of environment is very much affected by the lighting. 
Um, I haven't got it here, but we actually did a, a short animation to show that maybe 25,000 years ago, people were actually creating animations rather than static images. If you take your, you see the little candle there, if you move your candle backwards and forwards, because of the nature of the carving, you can get some impression of, of movement. Um, so maybe our ancestors were a lot more intelligent about these things than we give them credit for. Uh, the other thing, when you create virtual environments, you have to take into account, of course, our human eyes adapt very differently depending on the light conditions. So you can see that, you know, when you turn the light off, initially you see nothing, but as gradually your eyes adapt to it, and eventually you can see some detail. And certainly where you've got enough light, you can see color. Where you haven't, you don't, because depending on the cones and rods in the eyes. So these things, trying to create these things in an in, in environment in the computer, you need to take all this into account. You need to take how our senses work, otherwise you're simply misrepresenting the real world. Uh, a key part of, of, the, of the real world, and this is a, a major area where we're doing research in, is the idea of high dynamic range. The fact that the real world lighting is a lot brighter and a lot darker than we actually can represent typically on with a camera or, or a computer. Um, so, for example, if you're in a church, you can have the very bright light coming through the windows and the very dark of the church interior. And if you try to take existing camera technology, you can either get a nice detail of the, in, of the interior, but you, you miss out all, everything else is overexposed, or you manage to get the stained glass windows and everything else is underexposed. And so one of the key research here is around this real virtuality is high dynamic range, where we can actually try and capture the full amount of information and combine it in a single image, uh, which you can then show the detail, not only the stained glass, but the in, of the interiors. And that's very important. Uh, the application of this, we have a, a series of cartoons done to promote this, um, this idea of technology, that if you're on the plains of Africa with this high dynamic range technology, you can actually see the springboks in both the shadow and the shade. Um, other applications we're looking at are medical imaging. Uh, the big problem, if you're trying to, to record a, a hospital operation, um, you've got the very dark body cavities, and I've seen them, they are dark body cavities, all the way up to the bright operating theater lights, and no camera technology has been able to record that. So if you're trying to simulate an operation for whatever reason, you need to be able to capture that. Uh, similarly with sports, um, you simply can't see the football when it's kicked from the shadow into the, into the sunshine. And there's certain sh uh, images of golf matches you never see because the cameras can't capture it. And the Monte Carlo Grand Prix, you never see the, the car going into the tunnel. You see it at the beginning of the tunnel and in the tunnel and never across the threshold because current camera technology can't, can't capture that. And similarly with the news, if you've got someone standing against, you normally have a lighting crew to light her face, uh, which you don't no longer need. The other thing that's interesting with, with high dynamic range is it actually gives you depth perception. So there's a big, the big hype at the moment in imaging is the, is the idea of 3D, which is actually non-evolutionary. So you're, actually, you're trying to see images which your eyes haven't evolved to look at, which is basically focusing on the screen, but the image is coming up towards you. So yeah, 30% of people can't see 3D. A lot of people get headaches with it. And if you've got small children like I have, if you put your 3D glasses on, you'll never find them again. Um, so 3D technology is, 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 you know, is, is struggling, as always, to try and get adoption. But high dynamic range gives you that, that perception. Anyway, in the real world, beyond a certain distance, we don't use our two eyes to see it. We use other cues, one of which is lighting. Uh, of course, to have this all very well, to have this, this information, but if you want to be able to display it, you need, to, you need displays for it. It's all very well to capture it, and that's now happening. There are now high dynamic range displays out there which allow you to capture and display, and these displays are typically 30 times brighter and 10 times darker. So you've got about a 5,000 peak candela. Uh, and you can see that if they're doing a reconstruction, um, if, you, if you've got you know, a normal LCD display, this is some work, again, from, from, from Byzantine art in, in Cyprus. You know, a normal LCD, you simply can't show this image lit by candlelight because the, the LCD gets in the way. With these high-dynamic range displays, because they're very dark to very bright, you can have that. So, yeah, basically, visuals are now, with the, with the development of high-dynamic range, we're getting close to be able to capture and deliver the real-world lighting. And that's a very important part of, 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 of the work. The other thing you need to take into account, of course, in the real world, especially in, in virtual archaeology, it's not a particularly clean place. And so if you're trying to do, for example, a reconstruction of an Egyptian temple, you need to take into account that there's a lot of dust in the air, and, of course, light gets 
are scattered by the dust and you have far different perception. So having a computer environment which doesn't model dust for Egyptology is actually misrepresenting the environment because, in fact, in real life, you're going to have that dust scattering. Okay, so that's visuals. Um, sound, very important. And this we work with David Howard, who's a professor at the University of York. Uh, and basically one way of doing it, there are other ways, is that you go to the York Minster, and uh, twice a year they, they clean it all out. Uh, and if you go in there and you stand at a certain point, and that's where we see whether the sound works or not, and you fire... No, sound not working. Yeah, try it again. Should be ready. Oops. About ish. Um, so basically, you, you fire what's called impulse response function. You stand there and you fire a starting gun and you then record the sound with microphones. Having got that, then you can take your favorite soprano, if you have such a thing, and you can stick her in the Yorkminster and you can hear what she would sound like standing in that position. So you can recreate her, even though she's never been there, you can recreate, if you want to do this, and maybe not. Um, and so that allows you to basically put in sound into 3D space. Uh, then you can go to a place called Hamilton, if you'd like the Hamilton Mausoleum, which is a wonderful place. It's, a, it's exactly how not to design an acoustic environment. It's a box with a cylinder and a hemisphere on top, and it's got one of the longest, I can't say this word, reverberation times. Um, it's about 15 seconds. Um, so if you go into this environment and you fire your impulse response function, that it, reverberation is how the sound interacts off the various surfaces. So you can see that. Maybe it takes a long time. So you can take your soprano in there and you can stick her in, and you can close the door immediately because she doesn't half warble. Okay, in fact, the best place to sing is the shower. Um, and that's why your family may not think so, but the acoustics in the shower are actually very, very good. Um, and so if you can sing in the shower, you know, it actually sounds half decent. Okay, so sound. So basically, there are a lot of techniques now going to try and recreate sound. That's how you can do that. Now, you can create your environment. Once you know what your environment is, you can put your sound, you can capture all the information, and you can, you can create the sound in 3D. Smell is a very important sense. Um, I said, very prim uh, primeval. It affects very much how we perceive the world maybe as not as, as consciously as it used to be, because, of course, we now use all sorts of deodorants and perfumes to disguise smell. Um, but smell is actually a, a major influence on, on our mood, on how we attract our mates. So, for example, if a young man or young... Well, don't have to be young. If a man or, or, or lady smells good to you, the chances are they're a very good mate for you. And the reason why they smell good to you is because their immune system is very different from yours. So the dif more different that your immune system is to someone else, the better they will smell to you. Evolution, they make sense. You're going to mate with someone you like the smell of, and your children will then have a far better immune system. So if someone doesn't smell good to you, obviously, depending on, without after, aftershave or underarm, it's because the immune system is very similar to yours. And so evolution just makes sense. Um, affect your, you know, certain smells can affect your emotions, uh, and also memory. Memory smell is a very important part of memory. If there's a, if there's a smell of a certain event, uh, and you know, years later you, you have the same smell, then that the whole event will come back to you in crystal clarity, far better than any image or any sound recording will ever reproduce a memory. Uh, when I first presented this at, at a conference some years ago, I got an email from, a, from an 82-year-old man in, in Coventry who basically said, you know, he, he, he read about my, my work and said, absolutely right, when he was three-year-old, he had, had a boiled egg, soft-boiled egg, and since he's been you know, older, he hasn't been allowed to have soft-boiled eggs because they're not particularly safe for older people, apparently. Um, and then he had a soft-boiled egg one day by mistake, and he got this absolute crystal clear memory of when he was three years old. Um, that's incredible how it's all built in and related to smell. So smell, you can't create a virtual environment. You can't try and represent reality if you don't take this into account. Um, and so we're working closely with a guy called James Covington in our engineering department across the road uh, and a wonderful 
perfumer who was, was originally at, at Warwick and now owns his own private perfume business, George Dodd, to create a mobile aroma and a recreation system to be able to capture and deliver smell. So how do you do that? You go to a wonderful smell source. Um, this is a rather large gentleman in South Africa who deposited a very large smell source. You can see that. I mean, a very large smell source. Um, and we captured, uh, we got a, a bag of genuine rhino poo, as one does. And then you've got, a, you've got a device which can actually then capture the smell of rhino poo. Um, it may not be your first priority in life, but you know, it, it can be important. And so you suck the air of, of rhino poo across it, and you end up here, the pink symbol is this chemical composition of rhino poo. Uh, and the other ones happen to be different grasses, which you also capture at the same time. And not surprisingly, rhino poo is very close to grass. Um, and once you've got that, once you know the chemical composition, then you can recreate it and deliver that as a series of smells. Uh, you can see here um, you know, a number of vials. There are different ways of releasing smell, but you can, have, you know, you can buy airwax now, which effectively smell you know, uh, uh, delivery systems. So once you've got your chemical composition, you can work out what the key components are, and then you can deliver smell. Uh, of course, you need to have this device around with you, but there are, there are clever and clever ways of actually delivering smell. So, you know, it's certainly doable. Taste is a key part as well. Um, again, it's not something we think about a lot, but, you, you know, if you think about it now, you've actually got a taste in your mouth right now. You had a very nice cup of coffee before it came in. It's still, still lingering in my mouth. Um, what's really interesting is, is taste is actually 80% smell. If you take a piece of raw potato and a piece of raw apple and you stick them in your mouth, if you, if you close your nose, you will not be able to tell the difference. Okay, it's not a good idea because raw potato is actually slightly poisonous, but, you know, it's an, all in the name of science. Um, if you release your, 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 your nose, you'll actually taste its apple, and you realize that you should have sped up some uh, potato earlier. So, yeah, basically, a lot of the, just the texture, but the actual smell is a key part. There are actually only five basic tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and anami. Uh, anami is something like monosodium glutamate type, type taste. Uh, and so there's wonderful kits you can get, which are whiskey tasting kits, which George Dodd actually makes, which has got, in this case, 25 different smells, which allows you to identify whiskey. And so whiskey tasters actually don't actually put the whiskey in their mouth. They simply do it by smell. And the professional gets something like 2,500 different smells. Always seems quite a waste to me. I mean, if you're going to taste whiskey, you might as well taste whiskey. Um, but anyway, so you can also recreate smell. And the other one is feel. Now, of course, feel typically in virtual environments, you talk about haptics, the, the ability to, to touch things in virtual environments. But feel actually is far more than that. It's heat, it's temperature, it's pain, and things like that. Um, and so you can start to recreate these as well, um, depending on, on what you're trying to achieve. Actually, most of the, of the interaction in the virtual environment tends to be quite passive. It's some form of experience rather than some sort of interactive experience, which is actually very useful because if interactive experience, it's far more difficult to control that. And then you want to have specialist user interfaces, which allows you to sense reality. So we have a yachting scenario where you sit on, on the yacht, you're, so your bottom feels that you're on the yacht, uh, you're feeling the, 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 I'm not a yachtsman, there's this rudder thing here, I'm not, yachtsman will probably have, you know, say I've got this all wrong, but basically, and you then get the this, this, this stuff delivered to you, and you get the same sensation. So you're trying to create perceptual equivalence. So real virtuality then, is, it's the important thing, it has to be real-time. You have to deliver the real world in real-time. And it's got to be high fidelity. It's got to be based on physics. The human is very good at spotting something which is not physically based, because we've evolved to, to understand that. So these things like Second Life and things like that look unreal and actually have a, you know, they have a negative effect sometimes on you. Um, in any real uh, virtual environment, you've actually got two types of environment. You've got uh, the existing world, where you can simply capture it. So if I want to try, as we're doing now to some extent, although we're not delivering you know, smell and, and, and temperature, but we are trying to deliver visuals and, and audio to a virtual environment. So someone has experienced, or if they haven't fallen asleep already, um, this, this talk because they're actually getting the voice and the, and, and the visuals. But if we could deliver the smell and the taste and everything as well, maybe they would you know, have, a, have a richer experience. 
That's fine for the real world and for now, but if you want to create the past or the future, then of course you've got to create computer models of that. And this is where things become tricky. So most virtual reality environments tend to trade off realism to get the real-time performance. What we want to do is try to have to keep the physically-based realism and deliver real-time. And that's what the Virtual Cocoon Project's about. And so this is an example. This is a conceptual diagram of what we tend to do to capture the real world. So you have a sensor, which is effectively a robot capturing the sensors at various locations with some sort of limited movement, and that'll deliver. It's just purely delivering the real world to the virtual cocoon. Okay, so just if you want to model, how do you create the computational part? And of course, I'm originally a computer scientist, so that, you know, if you want to deliver these real world computations, is a key part of how we do it. One way is to use parallel processing, use more and more powerful computers. Uh, and that works fine. When you add more and more computers, you get to a certain point where it actually ends up taking far longer than it would. So instead of being 100 times quicker with 100 computers, it's actually only you know, less than two times quicker because basically it all depends on, on the overheads. So parallel processing is one way of doing it, but not, not, not a good, you know, it, it has some advantages. So really the key part of, to create this real virtuality environment is all about understanding you, understanding the human and how the human interacts. Okay, and as a, a quick test, we'll just test how good your eyes are this, this time in the morning after three cups of coffee. So I want to basically, you're going to watch a, a short animation, uh, and there's going to be a room, and each room there's going to be a mug with some pencils in it. Okay, and you're going to fly through, it's a short animation, you fly through, and you can see these, these four rooms with the four mugs. I want you to count the total number of pencils. Okay, but now it's not that simple, because in the mugs there are also going to be um, paintbrushes. So make sure you just count the pencils, not the paintbrushes. So let's see if I can get my glasses on myself, if we can see. Right, so count the pencils, and at the end tell me the, the cumulative total. No one said it was easy. How many pencils? 14. What is the color of the carpet? What other objects were in the room? Okay. Teapot. Well, computer graphics don't have teapots in it. Tables. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of information there, which, you know, you, the light reached your eyes, but you simply didn't see it. If you watch the animation again, you'll see a lot more. I mean, the, the carpet's actually is sort of blue with a sort of with a texture on it. Uh, there are paintings on the wall, Vermeer and Reitman paintings. Yeah, there's, there's a book which says Lord of the Rings, so we did the work, it was very topical. There's a lot of information in the room. All that light reached your eyes, but you chose not to see it because you were focusing on the task. In fact, what we're trying to do in that animation was actually control the quality of which we, did. we actually computed that animation. It was all computer generated. Uh, and to, to allow us to achieve a high fidelity experience for you, for the parts that you saw. So we knew you were going to be looking at the pencils, so we rendered the part in green at very high quality, uh, and the, between the green and the red at medium quality, and outside the red at much lower quality. And when I say render, it means we saved an awful lot of computation time because we didn't render at very high quality. We also knew that having counted the one, pens, uh, sorry, the one pencils here and the green circle, your eyes would move with saccade to the next pen, uh, pot and start counting. So you had a pretty good, clear idea where your eyes were going to be in that environment. And that allowed us to compute the chair that was in the room, this is a computation of the chair in very high quality with anti-aliasing, etc., like that. This takes 10 times longer to compute than that. Okay, you look at that, you can tell that's, that's a pretty poor quality. But no one, but no one saw that chair in, in experiments we did. I mean, if you, did, if you do say that, there are issues about that. But basically, when you're counting the pencils, because you focus on certain parts of a scene, we don't have to compute the whole scene in very high quality, just the parts you focus on. And that's crucial because that's typically 10, 15% of a screen, which we can do in real time on existing computers, which you, you can't do the full scene uh, in real time on, on, on current technology. That's because, in this case, we understand your human eye. Basically, when you walk into a scene, your eyes will automatically be drawn to certain things in the scene. Okay, movement in the periphery. Any of you been to a bar in America? You don't want to admit to it? 
Um, this is the worst place in any way to try and chat up a young lady or a young man. Absolutely the worst place in the world to try and chat someone up. Because you're sitting, trying to talk to them, and all around you are these televisions. I mean, all around you are these televisions. And so what you've got is you've got movement in the periphery. And your eyes will be dragged to the television, and you'll end up watching the stupid game show or some other stupid program, simply because of, of the way your eyes are turned. So you, know, you never actually get it. And we just, I was just in Canada two weeks ago with some colleagues, and it was, you know, I really tried very hard to have a conversation. And you always see them being dragged off to the television. And that's because when, you know, when we're evolving, we have to spot the movement in the periphery. Otherwise, you know, if that was a predator, we wouldn't evolve much further. And similarly, movement in, 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 in um, sorry, certain colors are very important. So red will stand out very much in a field of green because when we're evolving, we have to see that the fruit was ripe before we committed the effort to go to it. So we can understand exactly what's important for a human in a scene through what we call saliency maps. But then that you, if, you, if you're doing a task within the environment, um, that you can change, like counting the pencils. You can then basically fo fo force your attention to look at certain other things. Um, and so you can identify what you're looking at, so in our case was, was, the, um, was the pencils, and so we can understand where you are looking in the scene. And the work, idea of task maps came out in 1967 by a Russian scientist who's working on, you know, this is a picture of Repin's unexpected visitor. When people looked at the image, I tracked them to see where they would look depending on what task they were doing. So if they were just free viewing, they would do that. If they were judging their ages, that this is the scan path they'd use, if they guess what they'd be doing, etc. So depending on what task you do in a scene, changes the way in which you look at that scene. And if we understand that task, we can understand where you're looking, and where you're perceiving, and therefore only compute what's necessary. And so this gives us what we call importance maps, which allows us to take an environment. So here the, uh, the task was to walk through uh, your fire safety officer, judge the fire safety objects. So obviously we know that you're going to be looking at the fire safety objects. Um, so those areas are important. Not surprisingly, fire safety objects are very salient. You'll typically notice them in the environment. You want that. That's why they're red, because red's an important color. Uh, and edges, another thing. And what you end up with is a scene here where the areas in white are perceptually important. Areas in black are less important. And so you can actually choose the way in which you render those scenes. Um, and so you can end up with a scene here, which is completely gold standard, rendered very high quality. And the same scene rendered at six times less computational cost. Uh, and yes, if you sit and look at this image for a long time, you'll see the difference. But if you're performing in a virtual environment, you won't see the difference because it just doesn't, just your eyes don't see it. And that's, that's crucial because now we can selectively deliver the sensors and allow us to perceive and create these highly realistic virtual worlds. Um, so basically the whole perception of environment then comes down to a number of things. Um, Preconditioning, how familiar are you with the environment? The human imagination is a key part of, of how we perceive a world. How many of you played Dungeons and Dragons, when you're, I guess, when you were younger? Okay, a few of you, good. I mean, it's a wonderful game. It's all played in your mind. Uh, with someone explaining where you are. Not, I can't play computer games, similar games, because it's just not as rich as playing it in your mind. So human, human imagination is, is very important. And that was, there's a project called Virtual Vietnam, which is looking at um, helping Vietnam veterans with, with, with post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, all in this environment, it was a very poor quality. You can see, if you look at it, it's actually quite poor quality graphics. But all they had to do was give the right perceptual cues to the, to the veterans, and they would have a full, rich experience, because they had been there. They had been in the jungle. They knew what it was like. As long as they got the right cues, um, they have the same rich experience. And uh, a friend of mine in, in America is doing something similar to rock veterans um, with post-traumatic stress disorder. And he creates, again, these environments. And the key, the key cue in, in Iraq is the smell of burning flesh. The veterans who have that smell, that puts them back into Iraq. And then, you know, it doesn't matter if the quality is not that good. They don't perceive that. They perceive what, they what their mind's telling them is there. So that's very important. And also, again, we saw, depending on the nature of the task, if you're trying to create an environment of walking down a road, it's very much the, the, what you're going to design if you're looking for a street sign, if you're looking for a coffee shop, or you're looking you know, on a patrol in a hostile environment, your, your perception of the environment is very different. 
And so what we've come up to try and create these virtual environments, what we call the perception equation, which is effectively trying to compute the weighting of each of the senses which is affecting your current perception of that environment, including what we call a distraction factor, because you know, half of you are waiting for the coffee break, so you're not really paying much attention because your brain's saying, oh, we should hurry up so I can get my coffee. Um, so that's important. Your perception environment, maybe you may well be distracted. And of course, if you're tired, that distraction is important. And so if we can understand this weighting, then we only have to compute this weighting and not the full 100% for each of the senses, and we'll still have a very high fidelity experience because that's all a human perceives. Uh, example of this, if you, in the yachting scenario, experienced yachtsmen will look at the sound of the water on the hull, which gives them an indication of speed. So we're trying to create the environment for experienced yachtsmen, we've got to really focus on getting that sound quality perfect because they're using that cue to judge speed. An amateur yachtsman goes, water on hull, I'm not sinking, that's good. Um, you don't have to compute nearly as much, but maybe they listen, they, you know, they, they've got the smell of the barbecue from the beach because you know, it's time for lunch. So those are so your way in which you weight the senses are important depending on who they are and what they're doing. So what are the challenges then? 3D graphics in real time, 3D audio and smell, I'd say are not quite, but pretty much a solved problem. And we, we, we're very close to solving that problem. There are lots of other issues which, are, which need to be dealt with, touch and taste, and the delivery system, how do we get it in the most... When you're wearing the virtual cocoon, you have some technology on your head, you know that. That's affecting your perception. And your thing. Um, the innovation, really, for me, is the fact that, and this is one of the, the key reasons being in the digital lab as opposed to computer science department, you, to understand this, really, you've got to understand how everyone perceives this. It's a multidisciplinary problem, not just a technological problem. I think it's a big mistake to try and solve these things purely technologically. And so events like this are very important because it brings together people with completely different views but interested in the same problem. So you've got you know, visualization, you've got manufacturing, how do you manufacture, you've got psychologists, you've got philosophers, what does real mean, um, physics, chemistry, etc. And what you need to do then is create the level of realism which immerses it to that feel as if they're there. Um, just briefly to finish off some examples we're looking at, uh, we look at building comfort levels, so when you're designing a building, you want to take into account all the senses, so yeah, it's all very well to have a wonderfully designed building, but if your office happens to be next door to the toilets on a hot summer's day, it's not a good place to be. Um, and so, you know, these things are important when you design a building come to take into account smell, because if you, if you ignore that, you know, when you design the building, um, you're going to regret it. Um, tourism, as I say, well, this is what we're out with, this is a rather large gentleman in South Africa. The idea is actually, you know, it's very difficult, expensive to go to, to destinations. We shouldn't really be traveling that much. Um, certain places you want to go to, like Kuruanda, to see the, the mountain gorillas, not a good idea particularly. Um, but you still want to have that experience. And so can we capture and deliver across the internet that full rich experience of the full multi-century um, to actually allow you to, have, to perceive and experience it as if you were there. Um, of course, you still want to be able to get money back. The, you know, it's all very well for you to say, well, I don't want to travel, but the people who run these game parks need the money to have anti-poaching activities, to maintain fences, etc. And so the business model is that even if you can't actually go there, you can still have this experience virtually, but still pay money for that experience, and that, of course, goes to the game park to allow them to, to, to preserve the nature. So it is actually quite a, a beneficial arrangement because if people aren't traveling, things, you know, these, these sites really suffer um, without that, that, those funds. Um, informed shopping is some which, which is, uh, yeah, people certainly look at, and then you want to try the shoes, you want to feel the cloth, you want to smell the cheese, you want to taste the whiskey before you buy it. A lot of the big problem with the dot-com uh, a few, you know, several de a decade ago now is because basically a lot of products were ordered on the internet and then sent back. Anyone who's ordered clothes or shoes on the internet know that when you get them, first of all, they never look the same as they did on the internet because the light's different, and when you try them on, they're never quite the fit that you wanted. So a lot of products actually get sent back, and that's a huge waste uh, and one of the reasons why a lot of dot-coms failed. But if you can actually have a far more rich experience, you have a far more confident in what you buy is actually what you want. And that's important. 
Uh, also allows, of course, social uh, inclusion because you don't need to go out as much, although maybe, <laughs> maybe, it is a, maybe it's not such a good idea not to go out as it appears to be the case here. Um, we need to worry, you know, people need to get, maybe you go out for things which are important, not necessarily waste all your time on Saturday shopping. Uh, and face-to-face -face meeting is a key one as well because, I mean, there are teleconferences is a, is a, is a big area, but there's something about a face-to-face -face meeting which is just intimate and you get this level of trust and confidence which you never seem to get from any teleconferencing system. And maybe it's because you don't have enough senses. You can't smell the aftershave. You can actually smell fear in people as well if you're trained for that. So maybe the, the, you're not able to get the rich experience and so you don't have the intimacy on, 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 a, on a virtual conference. But if we can get that right, then we can avoid the need to fly from, from New York to London for that one-hour business meeting and all that air travel and all that expense of resources involved. Um, if, we can, if we get that, the level of intimacy right, you can have the same experience virtually as you have, you have in reality. And you have, of course you have to have trust. You want to make sure that when, you know, the person you, that's on, you know, on the other side of, of this internet is the person that you, you're expecting to meet. Um, so you need to, there are lots of issues with e-security around this as well. So really to finish off then, real virtuality by, by no means a solved problem. We're very much an active research area um, looking at all these different things, but we're trying to create these virtual environments which are perceptually equivalent to the real world. You know, and then you can actually start to explore, well, you know, what does it mean, what are the implications for that? Um, if you have the same level there, we can do things like re reduce travel. One of the dangers of reducing travel is that, of course, people are no longer going to foreign countries, and we, then we start to get suspicious of foreigners. I think one of the reasons the world is, in some ways, a safer place is because we've been gone to Europe. We know what the Europeans are like. Um, we are part of Europe, I believe. That's right. Um, apparently. Um, uh, yeah, but you know what they're like. You know what the French are like, and you know that you know, they, they're perfectly normal like you are. But if you don't go there, you never experience France, maybe you think, oh, there's French. Oh, yeah. And of course, people then can take advantage of that. So you wonder, even if you can't travel, you still want to be able to experience and meet and interact with people in those environments. I think it's a real danger as travel becomes more expensive, more difficult for environmental reasons. There is a big danger that we're going to have a lot more xenophobia and things like that, which we, we, we definitely want to avoid. And that's really what it's about. So this is another wonderful cartoon by Lance Bell. So that you know, in a virtual environment, you'd even smell like you put your foot in it. Thank you. <laughs>